If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at this, roughly the second half of the, of the eighth chapter of John this morning. Uh, John, if you're visiting with us and aren't familiar with this book, it's one of the oldest accounts of Jesus' life and teachings, things that he did, things that he said, what he, what he came for, what he came to offer to those who would trust in him. And where we are right now is in a section where Jesus is making promises and then people are responding to him for good or ill. What we're getting now is a clearer sense of what it is he came to offer and we're getting a clearer sense of what in us could keep us from responding well to what he came to offer. What we're getting is some examples of people who rejected him. Today, the conversation that we'll be tracing together, a conversation between Jesus and those who heard but rejected what he offered, is a conversation about freedom. It's a conversation that's all about freedom, what it is to be free. And Jesus promised that he can make us free. I wonder how you would define freedom. Probably not something you spend a lot of time thinking about. I wouldn't expect you to be able to generate like a dictionary-level definition on the, off the cuff here. But think about it. I wonder how you would define what it is to be free. Maybe the absence of any sort of constraint, of anything that might hold you back. Maybe freedom as the ability to do what you want. Maybe freedom is, is the removal of anybody else who could tell you what to do. I wonder if you've ever thought of yourself as less than free. I have to admit, thinking myself this week about this passage, about the cultural baggage I bring to it, I realize I don't really ever think of myself that way as anything less than free. I mean, we're Americans, for crying out loud. Didn't we just celebrate July 4th? It's all about independence. It's kind of a core identity for us. Is what, who are you? Well, we are the people that are free, Right? Have you ever thought of yourself as, as anything less than free, I wonder? What Jesus says this morning is that there's a, sense, there's a sense in which all of us are enslaved. And what we're going to hear Jesus say is that if we look to him, he can set us free. And what we're going to see as we hear Jesus say that, and we watch how people react to him, is that it's not necessarily something we immediately think of as a good thing. That Jesus would tell us we aren't free, and that Jesus would have the gall to suggest He can free us. That on both of those counts, there's a lot in us, just like there was a lot in the people Jesus first talked to, that reacts against those kinds of claims. So what we want to do this morning, walking through this conversation that Jesus had with, with His Jewish hearers at the time, is try to understand his offer. What is it that we need to be freed from? Why can we trust Jesus can free us? But then also, while we do that, looking at, the, at these Jewish leaders and how they responded to Jesus, we want to try to get a better sense of ourselves, a more critical awareness of what there might be in us that will keep us from, from turning to Jesus for freedom, that might keep us enslaved, that might actually cause us to resent him and his claim that he can set us free. So we're really we're primarily looking at what it is we need to be freed from and why Jesus can free us. But layered on top of that, we want to look into ourselves and try to be critical and wonder and, and ask, is there anything in us that will keep us from being freed by Jesus, from accepting his offer? That's where we're headed this morning. I want to begin by reading 
from verses 31 to 59 in John chapter 8. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's Word as I read. This is the Word of the Lord from John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Him, We're offspring of Abraham. have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I mentioned one of the things we're going to be tracing here is what it is that Jesus says he can free us from. Because we may not immediately recognize that we need freedom. What he offers us is some insight into who we are, into what our, our true condition is. That's where he came to meet us. Not necessarily what we think we need, but what he knows we need. And the first thing that he says we need freedom from is freedom from sin. Now, now Jesus promised in verses 31 and 32 that he can, he can make those free who abide in his word. That his word is a truth that once connected with, once you sort of sit in it, once you let it come around you and shape how you see everything, how you interact with the world, that that word, that truth will set you free. Once Jesus has made this promise, it evokes an immediate and negative response from those that that are hearing him. These are people who seem to believe in Jesus, where we left off last week. Jesus was talking to, to folks, and some seemed like they wanted to be with him. We're told in verse 30 that as he was saying these things, the things we looked at last week, many people believed in him. Now here he is talking to those people who seem to believe in him, tells them he can make them free, and they throw the brakes on. You know, that's, you've gone far enough. I read it as not unlike something we've seen, maybe even something we've known in our experience, where somebody offers you something that on its face is positive, but you take it as an insult. Say somebody offers to pay for your dinner. It's a nice thing to do, right? But sometimes, for some people, well, that offer is taken as a sort of subtle, passive-aggressive statement that you can't buy your own dinner. That's the way the Pharisees, probably who, who Jesus is talking to here, take Jesus' comment. You want to make us free, but that implies you think we're not free. We are free. Abraham is our father. Think of them here almost like an American would react here. You're saying an American is not free? Who do you think you are? It's almost kind of pitiful that they respond this way. Because basically there had not been any major power in the ancient world that hadn't conquered Israel at one point. Right? They were, they were enslaved to the Egyptians. Then the... Then the, uh, the Babylonians came and took them over. Then the Persians took them over from the Babylonians. And now the Romans have taken them over from the Persians. They were just getting swapped around by the powers that be. But in their own minds, we're not enslaved to anyone. We've never been enslaved to anyone. They're probably talking about something more like slavery at the level of identity, of who we are. Like we may technically have to pay taxes to some guy over in Rome. But when it comes down to it, we're free. And there is no one who has ever held a child of Abraham in bondage. Here's another way to read it. The barrier that's in these Jews and that might be in you to receiving the freedom that Jesus wants to offer you is this. It may be that you, like they, don't think you need the freedom Jesus came to offer. Jesus' response to them elaborates on what he means when he says that he can set free all who remain in his word. But it doesn't make him any happier. 
In verse 34, Jesus, Jesus tells them, gives them the answer of what, what, kind of, what kind of slavery he's talking about here. They say, we're children of Abraham. We're not enslaved to anyone. He says, oh, not so fast, my friends. Verse 34, anyone who's ever committed sin, he says, is a slave to sin. There's our clue. This is the first thing Jesus wants to free us from. He wants to free us from sin. Pharisees, probably who he's talking to here, didn't think that they needed to be freed from sin, and you might not think that either. So listen carefully as Jesus has this conversation with them because needing to be freed from sin oftentimes is something you don't recognize when you need it the most for reasons Jesus is going to show us. He's talking about enslavement to sin, verse 34 says. And then in verse 38 and following, he explains that one of the clues to why you need to be set free from sin has everything to do with who your father is. These Jewish hearers had said, we're not enslaved, we don't need to be set free because our father is Abraham. Jesus says, you're right to trace this thing back to who your father is. You're wrong when you say that your father is Abraham. You've got another father that defines who you are, what you love, what you seek out of this life. Look at how he does this in verse 37 and 38. He says, I know that you're offspring of Abraham, sort of, but you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak what I've seen in my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. First subtle hint. Your father, your real father, the one who gives you your identity, isn't Abraham. They say, our Abraham is our father, verse 39. What are you talking about? Then Jesus says, no, yeah, physically you came down from Abraham, but but if you were really the descendants of Abraham, if you were really Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But you seek to kill me. Abraham never did that. That's not the kind of thing he would ever do. He heard from God and loved it. He gave his life to passing on the promises that God had made to him. Abraham heard what I'm saying to you from God, and he embraced it. What you're doing is seeking to kill me because of what you're hearing. But you are doing the works of your father. That's true enough. What Jesus is drawing from is what we all know from experience. That for good or ill, our parents deeply, in some senses indelibly, mark who we are. Our parents, one of the most fundamental things that parenting is doing is shaping desire. It's shaping understanding of what's good, of what's worthy, of what we should want, what we should seek with all that we are and all that we have. And even the most... Even the most liberal perspective on parenting that wants to set children free to be who they are without any constraints of prior tradition or or society is ultimately shaping their child to believe that defining life for yourself is a good thing that you should give yourself to. I mean, there's no way that parenting doesn't define what's good or what your desire should run towards as a child. So Jesus is drawing on something that we know from human experience. What we love probably shaped in some fundamental way by what our parents love and what they've taught us and modeled for us to love for good or ill. And now, verses 39 and following, Jesus says, here's the Father that ultimately has shaped who you are and what you love. Here is why you are enslaved even though you don't know it. Verse 41, you are doing the works that your father did in seeking to kill me. Jesus said to them, verse 42, If God were your father, you'd love me, because I came from God and I am here. Basically what Jesus has been saying all along. I don't act on my own. I'm only doing what my father has sent me to do. 
If God were your father, you would love me. But, verse 44, this is where the rubber meets the road. You are of your father, the devil. Your will, your desire, your orientation in life, what you are after with all that you are, is to do your father's desires. And he, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth within him. What's in the devil? His character is defined by lying. Now, here's, here's what you need to get out of, verses, out, of really, out of verse 44. Here's the reason Jesus is taking these Jewish hearers and plugging them into the family of the devil. And here's why he would say to every one of us in here this morning that on our own, as we come, we belong to him too. There are two marks that mark the love, the desires, the whole orientation of the devil. And those two marks are showing up in these people that Jesus is talking to now. Those two marks are death and deception. Death and deception. From the beginning, the first time we ever see this evil one that so much of the Bible talks about, the first time we ever see this evil one uh, interacting with humans in the story of the Bible is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which describes the world as God created it and how everything went wrong. And this, this evil one comes to the first humans that God has made in his image and ultimately seeks their death because God had warned them. This is the story is told in Genesis 2 and 3. God had warned them that if they, if they disobeyed his word, if they refused to trust that he could take care of them if they would follow him, if they went out on their own, the result of that would be death. And the first thing we ever see the evil one doing is trying to convince God's children that he was not trustworthy. Trying to get them killed, essentially. And then deception. So death, he's after death. He's always been about death. But his means to getting people there is deception. Same story, Genesis chapter 3. First time we ever see this evil one acting, interacting with humans. The way he does it is to lie about what God had said. To take the word that is the key to life and start telling people they can't trust it. Did God really say that you would die? Is your disobedience really that big of a deal? It doesn't lead to death. Come, come on. Seriously? God would not kill you. From the beginning, the evil one has been about death through deception. These people interacting with Jesus bear those marks. Their desires towards Jesus are death and their whole outlook on life is defined by deception. A deception that has convinced them that they don't have a problem with sin. That someone else might have a problem with sin, but they don't. So they don't need what Jesus has come to offer. Jesus is promising that he can set them free if they accept his word. Free from slavery to evil desires. Free from bondage to what they're too blind to recognize. And he offers the same thing to each one of us. But we've got to have eyes to see and ears to hear it. And one of the things that stands against us connecting with Jesus more than anything else 
is that the nature of sin itself is to convince us that we don't have a sin problem. It is deception. Now, now there may be some of you sitting here this morning who know immediately that you have a problem with sin. And when you hear Jesus say that if you remain in his word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, that everyone who's sinned is a slave to sin, but my word can set you free, that may sound like a drink of cool water to you this morning. I hope it does. It is true. If you're sitting there feeling like your sin has you beat and there is nothing you can do to stop it, well, then you're kind of right. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It does have you beat. But Jesus, Jesus owns a power that has overcome this world, and he can set you free today if you will trust him, if you will hear his word and embrace it. But my guess is there are others of us in here, maybe most of us in here, who struggle to see ourselves as enslaved at all. We're more like those to whom Jesus originally spoke. And we hear this talk of sin, and then particularly, uh, particularly of, of enslavement to sin, and we don't feel that. It doesn't sound right. It's not something we think we have experienced. I'm talking to myself here. I don't often feel enslaved. I wonder if that stands for you as well. There's a couple ways this, un- this sort of unbelief in Jesus as the liberator of, from sin. There's a couple ways this unbelief could show up. One could be a lot like what these original hearers are saying here, that sin may be a problem. It may be such a thing as doing wrong. We all know that there are these big sins out there, right? Like slavery, injustice. But sin is somebody else's problem. Sin is not something that that I struggle with. It's something that, that they struggle with. Jesus would warn us, friends, if that's, if that's what you feel this morning, if you feel that sin might be a problem but isn't yours, particularly if you ever find yourself thinking about other people and their problems and feeling assured and even better about yourself because you don't share them, if that ever creeps into your mind, then what Jesus would warn you with this morning is that your deception to your own sin is a primary mark. The fact that you don't see sin as a problem is a primary mark that your desires are the desires of the evil one. That your mind is shaped more by him than by the God who made you and who stands as rightful judge over you. If sin does not seem like a problem for you, friends, then you are in deep danger. Another way that unbelief can can show up in us is when we don't buy the concept of sin in general. This is a more modern problem, I think. Sometimes... Sometimes we might think that yeah, sin is real, it's just somebody else's problem. Sometimes I think it can just be hard to think of sin as anything real at all. Like it's just some word that we use for describing somebody else's moral code. You know, Sin as, as breaking your moral code. Not, not some problem that's out there for everybody. Not some standard that all of us are required to uphold but are unable to uphold. Sin is 
something that condescending people use to describe actions they don't like, especially if those actions have something to do with sex. And if that's what you think about sin, then chances are freedom, freedom to you sounds more like being liberated from these standards that other people might impose on you. Freedom to sort of do what you will with your life. That could sound like freedom to you. And Jesus coming in and saying, no, 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 no. Freedom is about, freedom is about not having to worry about sin anymore because you aren't doing it. You aren't enslaved to it. That could sound like bondage to you. But what Jesus would say to you, friend, if that's what you're, if that's what you're thinking, what he would say to you is that freedom is more complicated than you think it is. That freedom is not just being able to do what you want. Freedom freedom is being able and wanting to do what you should. Freedom is being able and having the desire to do what you were made to do. That's what it is to be free. And that you, one way to spend your life in bondage is to spend it running after every little whim or desire that might creep through your mind or heart. That's the way to be in shackles. I, mean, I think one of the best examples of this is, is looking carefully at what happens to someone whose life is controlled by drugs. There's plenty of, you, you may have known people like this, or there's plenty of ways in, in art and culture to see this. Uh, so chances are you have these images in your mind. Dr- giving yourself over to drug use to something like heroin, something that can just take over your, your mind and your body and your heart. Well, it starts as the desire to, for pleasure, right? And the desire to be free to seek that pleasure. And if you looked at someone who was giving into it in the moment, it would look like they were getting a lot out of life, right? In that moment, they look happy. In that moment, they look like they are getting exactly what they want and need. But if you take a step back out of that moment, and you look at what happens to their life to serve their bondage to that fix, then what you see is a person, not a person who is happy, but as a person who is enslaved to pleasure. So freedom is not being able to seek pleasure. Freedom is being able to be who you are, to find pleasure in what you are supposed to be from the beginning. And that's the kind of freedom that Jesus wants to give you. His truth can make you free in that sense. He can, tell you, he can give you a freedom to enjoy something that will not destroy you. Because ultimately, friends, if all you do is chase the next pleasure, you're going to end up destroyed. And it might seem like fun along the way, but it won't be fun in the end. Jesus wants to set you free from seeking the next fix and to set you free to be who He made you to be. And if you remain in His Word, if you know His truth, That's the freedom He will give you. That's the freedom He'll give you. Now there's another sense in which He wants to make us free. This one receives much less attention in our text, which is why we're coming to it here at the end. But it's still essential to Jesus' overall message. And we've got to see it before we close. Jesus wants to set us free not just from sin. He wants to set us free also from death. This one introduces us with a a, a kind of bondage that we probably all recognize that we have. We don't all see sin as a problem. I, I think all of us in our saner moments see death as a problem, as something that's coming for each of us that we can't avoid. Jesus is promising 
that he can deliver us from the power of death. This comes out in the last paragraph. Jesus responds to their pushback against him by going even further in his promises, by getting even more outlandish with the things he says he can do. They say in verse 48, you're a Samaritan. That's a slur. It's a racial slur. And you have a demon. You're the one whose father is the devil, not us. Jesus answered with what he's been saying all along. I don't have a demon. Look, my whole life is about doing what my father sent me to do. Whatever he wants, that's what I do. Whatever he says, that's what I say to you. Everything about me is downloaded from him and transmitted to you. But here's what my father ultimately sent me to do. Here's what he says. Get this. Verse 51 is a promise that Jesus makes from his father to the very people who have just accused him of being demon-possessed and who in a few verses are going to pick up stones to throw at him. Don't blow past the beauty of that. Jesus is offering this promise to those who would have him killed. And here's what he says. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Read this in light of the opening verses, verses 31 and 32. Remember what, the, what he says there, which stands over this whole section. Remain in my word. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. I'll set you free from that. Now read this verse in light of that overarching promise. I will set you free. Whoever keeps my word, same emphasis on his word, that person will never see death. The author to a later, one of the earliest Christian writers who, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, I think elaborates on what Jesus is saying here. This is, this is something the author to Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 of the letter to Hebrews. It says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is what John says when he says that the word became flesh and lived among us. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What that author is saying, what Jesus is drawing from when he says he can set you free from death. And, and chances are what most of us have experienced in one way or another is that the fact that we're going to die steal so much of the joy that we might otherwise have out of this life. It's the reason. It's the reason that things don't last, right? The reason that you mourn the fact that your vacation only lasts a week and then it's over is that you know that's one vacation closer to the time when you die and don't get any more vacations, right? If you knew you had a life full of one-week vacations, you wouldn't mourn it that much. But it's the fact that every year brings you closer to death that takes the joy out of things that don't last. It's the looming threat of death that makes us try to build up everything we can in this life. We want to amass. We want to collect to ourselves as much as we possibly can because we know this life isn't going to last, so we need to make it count. It's this fear of death that enslaves us so that we protect everything that we have. We've got to defend what's ours because death is coming. Every year takes us closer to it, and we've got to hold on to what we can as long as we can. Death binds us into a kind of slavery. And Jesus say, is saying he can set us free from it. It's a beautiful idea. 
It's a beautiful idea, but who is he to say he can do that? That's the reaction of the Jews. Now we know you have a demon, they say. They think he doesn't get the implications of his claim that he can set them free from death. They think he's just missing something. So they say, Abraham's dead. Our our father Abraham couldn't do anything about death. Neither could the prophets. They all died too. Who do you think you are that you can do something Abraham couldn't do or that the prophets couldn't do? They think Jesus just isn't getting it. So they're helping to shed some light on the situation for him. They don't realize, they aren't ready for what Jesus says next, which is precisely. Abraham couldn't stop death, neither could the prophets. Abraham, in fact, Abraham rejoiced to see my day because because before Abraham was, I am. Now, friends, let me make sure you understand what that means. It's an awkward sentence, isn't it? It was awkward in Greek, too. You'd expect him to say, before Abraham was, I was, if he was trying to make a claim that he lived before Abraham. Now, that's an outlandish claim, even thousands of years ago, right? So that would have been a crazy thing to say, even in itself. But, But that he says, before Abraham was, I am, makes it an even crazier claim, because what he's doing is this. What he's doing is reaching back to one of Israel's founding stories. When Moses is preparing to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt where they were in bondage, and he doesn't think that God can do it, and he doesn't think that Israel will think God can do it, and so he asks God for proof. Who shall I tell them has sent me, he says. Who will I tell them is going to deliver them? And God's answer to him becomes the name by which Israel will always know their God. He tells Moses, I am. And when Jesus says that those who keep my word will never taste death, and when Jesus responds to those who don't think he's up to that job by claiming, I am, what Jesus is saying is that the reason you can trust me to deliver you from death is that I am the same God that spoke life into being. I am the one who said with a word, let there be light, and light shined in the darkness. I am the one who with breath breathed into the first humans and made them who they were. And I am the God that can give you life and make sure that you will never taste death. He knew exactly what he was claiming. And that's why, the end of this chapter, we see these Jews picking up stones because they think he is blaspheming. And the question for us is whether we will join them or believe Jesus. If he is the God who made us, he is the God who can give us life. The only way to know, one way or the other, is not through evidence, though evidence can help. The only way to know, the only way to have his trustworthiness confirmed for you is to meet Him. You've got to meet Him to know that He is who He says He is. And the only place you meet Him now, the place, is His Word. So I want to conclude by calling you, friends, to look back at verses 31 and 32 and to look at verse 51 and notice that in both places Jesus is making promises 
the hinge for those promises is our remaining in his word. You want to know if Jesus can deliver? You want to feast on the richness of all that he offers us? You've got to go to him there and you've got to stay there. Because his word is not a genie in a bottle. There is no magic formula that will make sure you get exactly what you're looking for every time you go to it. In fact, lots of times you're going to read from the Bible and it's not going to do it for you. But you've got to remain in his word, to abide in it until it starts to shape who you are and how you see everything. And it is through his word and through his word alone that you can be set free. I want to pray that for us now. Father, we long to be free from death, from that which haunts us. And we long to be free from sin because the more we're sensitive to it, the more we recognize it as a problem that we can't solve. And so what we pray is that Jesus will be true to his word for us, that his power will be greater than ours, and that he will set us free. We want to be truly free, free indeed. And so we pray to you, in Jesus' name, amen.
as we continue to worship this morning, uh, we're going to take up an offering. Parents, I invite you to go ahead and get your children. Go quickly and come back because we're going to pray somebody off today, which is sad, but good. And um, we'll continue to sing a song as we end out after that. foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith and his excellent word what more can he say than to you he has sent to you for refuge to Jesus and For I am thy God And will still give thee aid I'll strengthen thee, help thee And cause thee to stay Upheld by my righteous Amen, I'll strengthen thee I'll strengthen thee, help thee And cause thee to stay Upheld by my righteous Omnipotent man, a soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to soul again, that soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shoot, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake.